Uh, so we're reading from 1 Chronicles chapter 13, and then after, we're going to read the whole chapter, and then after that we're just going to jump ahead to chapter 16, and then once we've gone to 16, we're going to go from verses 7 to 36. Um, David conferred with each of his officers, the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. He then said to the whole assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you, and if it is the will of the Lord our God, let us send word far and wide to the rest of our brothers throughout the territories of Israel, and also to the priests and Levites who are with them in their town and pasture lands to come and join us. Let us bring the ark of our God for we did not inquire of it during our reign, the reign of Saul. The whole assembly agreed to, the, to do this, because it seemed right to all the people. So David assembled all the Israelites from the Shehor River in Egypt to Lebo Hamath to bring the Ark of God to Kiriath Jearim. David and all the Israelites with him went to Bala of Judah, Kiriath-Jerim, to bring up from there the ark of God the Lord, who is enthroned between the cherubim, the ark that is called by the name. They moved the ark of God from Abinadab's house on a new cart, with Uzzah and Ahio guiding it. David and all the Israelites were celebrating with all their might before God, their so- with songs and with harps, lyres, tambourines, cymbals, and trumpets. When they came to the threshing floor of Kedon, Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the ark, because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah, and he struck him down because he had put his hand on the ark. So he died there before God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of God that day and asked, How can I ever bring the ark of God to me? He did not take the ark to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house for three months, and the Lord blessed his household and everything he had. So now, jumping ahead to chapter 16, verse 7. That day, David first committed to Asaph and his, his associates this psalm of thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known among the nations what he has done. Sing to him, sing praise to him, tell of all his wonderful acts. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Look to the Lord and his strength. Seek his face always. Remember the wonders he has done, his miracles and the judgments he pronounced. O descendants of Israel, his servant. O sons of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever the word he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant he made with Abraham, the oath he swore to Isaac. He confirmed it to Jacob as a decree, 
to Israel as an everlasting covenant. To you I will give the land of Canaan as the portion you will inherit. When they were but few in number, few indeed, and strangers in it, they wandered from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another. He allowed no man to oppress them. For their sake he rebuked kings. Do not touch my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be, he is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy in his dwelling place. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of nations, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Then the trees of the forest will sing. They will sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Cry out, save us, O God, our Savior. Gather us and deliver us from the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name that we may glory in your praise. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Then all the people said, Amen, and praise the Lord. Uh, friends, let's pray. Our gracious God, we do thank you for uh, your scriptures. We pray that as we look at this uh, section of 1 Chronicles now, that uh, by your word and spirit, that you would be helping us to get to know you better and getting to know how it is that we ought rightly to respond to you, especially through Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Where's the love in that? That's a question which we as Christians might sometimes even ask about God. Think about this scenario, for example. A man and his wife, active members of the congregation... They give some money to the church, and, and that sounds like a pretty good thing to do, isn't it? Um, but the problem is that they, they want people to think um, that they are more generous than, than what they actually are. And so they deceive, they lie. And the result is an outbreak of anger from God who strikes Ananias and Sapphira dead on the spot, right there, right then, and the church is seized with fear. Shocking, isn't it? It's a dreadful story. And yet, I think as Christians, that we, we can live with a story like that because at least we know what it is that they had done wrong. We can understand that. But what about the man Uzzah? He's part of a team that have been designated to, uh, uh, to shift a box. Uh, not just any old box, this is a very special box. 
which they've been asked to move from a town in Judah to the city of Jerusalem. So they, uh, they load the box onto, the, onto a cart, which is towed by oxen, and along the road, one of the oxen stumbles, and so Uzo kind of reaches out to grab the box, just to steady the box so it won't fall on the ground and break. So God kills him, right there, right then. And you've got to think to yourself, well, where's the love in that? I mean, people might say, how can we say that God is love? When he kills a man for just reaching out and touching a box. I mean, how can you even believe in a God like that? When we come across passages in the Bible where it seems that God is um, being unjust... Uh, we need to dig a bit deeper, don't we? Uh, because we ought to expect that there's, there's something else which is going on here, <laughs> that this is not the full story. In 1 Chronicles chapter 13, uh, which you might want to have opened in your Bibles, in 1 Chronicles chapter 13, Israel was at a point in, in their history where they had just come out of what you, you might say was a spiritual dark ages. And it's a time which is somehow connected with this box. Uh, let's pick it up in verse, uh, verses 1 to 6 of chapter 13. The, the situation is that Saul is now, now dead and David is now king. And here what he does is he consults the, uh, the leaders of Israel, he consults the representatives of the people who then make a decision concerning this particular box. And let's have a look at the decision. It's in verse 3. They decide, let us bring the ark of our God back to us, for we did not inquire of it during the reign of Saul. Now, they don't call it a box, do they? They, they call it an ark. And friends, we're not talking about Noah's ark here. Uh, this is a... Um, uh, it's, it's a box, it's a wooden box which is uh, covered with gold and inside the box were kept some pretty special items. For example, the two stone tablets that God inscribed the Ten Commandments on. It's pretty special, don't you reckon? <laughs> very, very special. And the, the lid of the ark was known as the mercy seat, uh, which was flanked on either side by cherubim. Uh, cherubs are um, sculptures of uh, angelic heavenly beings which are uh, there symbolically to protect the ark and to protect the mercy seat. Uh, if you have a look in verse 6, have a look at what it says about the mercy seat, mercy seat there in verse 6. It says, David and all the Israelites with him went to Balar of Judah, that is Kiriath-Jerim, to bring up from there the ark of the God the Lord, who is enthroned between the cherubim, the ark that is called by the name. So, the, so God's, the mercy seat is considered to be the throne of God. Makes it kind of special, doesn't it? This is no ordinary box. It was a symbol of God's presence. It was a symbol of God's rule over Israel, his authority, and it was the place from where God would reveal his will. 
But not whilst Saul was king. In fact, uh, during the reign of Saul, the ark had been abandoned at this town, Kiriath-Jerim, which was on the Philistine border. They'd abandoned the ark. Israel thought that they didn't need the ark because they thought they didn't need God. But there's a new king now. And as David gets down to business... Uh, One of the top jobs on his to-do list is to change the way that decisions are being made. From now on, Israel would seek after the will of God, which means that the Ark of the Covenant must now be brought from Kiriath-Jerim to Jerusalem. But you can't just load it onto the back of a cart and tow it even with a very special musical procession. And this was a lesson that they were about to learn the hard way. When in uh, verses 7 to 14, they have their first go at moving the ark. The man Uzzah reached out and touched the ark to stop it from falling. And when he did that, I want to say this, that what followed was that two things broke out. I'm not talking about breaking out of the ark. But first of all, in verse 11, the chronicler, the author of Chronicles, says that there was a breakout of God's wrath against Uzzah as God struck Uzzah down. And notice if you have a look at verse 10, uh, how the author describes where Uzzah died. It says that he died before God, doesn't it? That is, the presence of God is... Uh, seen there at, in the, at the Ark of the Covenant, as if God was right there. Secondly, there is also an outbreak, uh, not of God's wrath, but of God's blessing. The, the death of Uzzah caused David to move through various emotions. He moved from, he started with the emotion of anger, he was angry towards God, And then that moved to fear of God, which meant that he wasn't quite sure what to do with the ark. He didn't want to take it all the way to Jerusalem. That seemed to be a dangerous thing to do. Have a look at verse 12. David was afraid of God that day and asked, How can I ever bring the ark of God to me? He did not take the ark to be with him in the city of David. Instead, He took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house for three months. And the Lord blessed his household and everything that he had. I mean, what do you make of the ark? One man reaches out and touches it and dies. And the other man actually keeps it in his house for three months and he gets blessed. (laughs) One of the key lessons in these chapters is that when Israel puts God first, they end up being blessed. Uh, This um, slab of one chronicles that we're looking at today is essentially about uh, the, the two efforts of David to get the ark to Jerusalem. So chapter 13, that's the first attempt to get the ark to Jerusalem and uh, chapters 15 and 16 
uh, the second attempt to get the ark to Jerusalem. But in between those two attempts to get the ark to Jerusalem, in chapter 14, the author seems to go off topic because he breaks into telling us stories about how well things were going for David. Have a look at verse two, verse 1. It says, Now Hiram, the king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, along with cedar logs, stone masons and carpenters, to build a palace for him. That sounds pretty good. And David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that his kingdom had been highly exalted for the sake of his people Israel. This is all good news, isn't it? This is great news. Not terribly good news for the Philistines, by the way. Because... What happens when suddenly you're the neighbouring country, you find that they've now got this, this, this uh, respected king and that they are now united under this king. And so in verses 8 to 13, the Philistines felt threatened by this strong Israel united under David. So what did they do? Well, they attacked in fact, twice we're told that they attacked Israel and twice David's armies were victorious. When you're reading through this, you think to yourself, why? that's good to know, but why did the chronicler decide to interrupt, to break into this good story about the ark getting to Jerusalem to tell us about this? And I think that maybe it's because it tells us something about David. Uh, let's read, um, uh, let me read to you from chapter 14, verse 8. Uh, when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over all Israel, they went up in full force to search for him. But David heard about it and went out to meet them. Now the Philistines had come and raided the valley of Rephaim. So David, what did he do? He inquired of God, shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you hand them over to me? And the Lord answered him, go, I will hand them over to you. Um, go down to verse 13. Once more the Philistines raided the valley. So David, what did he do? He inquired of God again. And God answered him, do, do not go straight up, but circle around them and attack them in front of the balsam trees. See, David, the author here is telling us that there's a new king in town. And this king actually inquires of God. He's got a heart for God. Notice in verse 11 how David describes the victory that he enjoyed. He says in verse 11 that God has broken out against my enemies. It's the same language that he used earlier on when he talked about God's anger breaking out against Uzzah. And there's some parallels here because the Israelites had abandoned the ark in, in uh, Kiriath-Jerim now we're told it's the Philistines who abandoned their gods. And uh, the, uh, the, the death of Uzzah had left, uh, caused a breakout of God's anger, which, uh, of God's wrath, which actually caused uh, David to become fearful of God. And now we're told that the Philistines actually feared David. Um, and so... Chapter 14 wraps up with that note that the, the nations now fear David. 
just as God's anger had broken out against Uzzah, causing David to fear him. It seems that the chronicler wants us to know that David genuinely did seek after God and after the will of God. Things had gone badly wrong when they tried to move the ark to Jerusalem. But David's response didn't just move from anger to fear and stop there. It actually moved on to repentance. And this is what we see as we work through the passage. David was seeking God's will. God had blessed him with a kingdom and with victories. But still doesn't explain why God killed Uzzah. David didn't become disillusioned with God, as you and I can sometimes be when we feel that God is treating us unjustly or seems to be punishing us in some way. Because as he struggled with the death of Uzzah, it seems, we're not told this explicitly, but we can deduce that he, that he searched the scriptures to, uh, and, he, and he came to realise that this was actually a case of God's discipline. Because despite his heart for God, he'd been sloppy with the whole issue of the holiness of God. I read an opinion piece in the Herald just last week, which was by a public figure who I don't want to name because I actually felt a degree of... Um, <clears throat> of uh, I really felt for the author, actually. The person made it quite clear that they believe in God and they seem to want to actually share that news with the, the readers. Uh, the person was saying how they, they pray daily to God and pray to God for guidance, uh, especially as they wrestled with some complex issues in life. But they were so weak on the issue of God's holiness and of the need for human repentance. I think sometimes we hear people talking about God and their faith in God and, and in Christ. And one of the litmus tests though, that I look for is what do they say about the death of Jesus? Um, do they talk about the death of Jesus? Do they talk about why he died and the, the blessing of God that they've received from his death. That seems to be a bit of a litmus test. God is holy and we are not. We are sinful. And because of our sin, we're, we can't, we're separated from God. The only reason that you and I can approach God is because of Jesus, isn't it? He is both our sacrifice for sin and our priest. That is, he, he is our go-between, the, the mediator between God and man. And the Old Testament foreshadow of this is that you just can't rock up to the Ark of the Covenant and load it onto the back of a cart and try to grab it when you think it's going to fall. You can't do that. That's, 
like someone imagining that they can just sort of cruise on in through the gates of heaven without going through Jesus. So after God had given Moses the Ten Commandments and, and the Ark of the Covenant was built, um, it was kept inside the, the, the tent of the Lord. Um, the, some of the older versions call it the, the tabernacle. And it wasn't just inside the temple, it was inside the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest could presume to enter. And he could only enter after purification rituals and offering up sacrifice for his sin. But God's people had been on the move, hadn't they? As they uh, <clears throat> wandered around the desert for 40 years and as they finally entered into the promised land, they were on the move, which meant that the ark was also on the move. But how do you move that which is the very symbol of the presence and the authority of God? How do you shift it? Well, on your uh, outlines, I've just printed out a couple of uh, Old Testament passages from the, from the law. Uh, let's have a look at the one from Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 8. I'll read that for you. It says, At that time the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the ark of the covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister and to pronounce blessings in his name, as they still do. Who was to carry the Ark of the Covenant? It was people from the tribe of Levi. Uh, the L L Levi was the, 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 the priestly tribe. Uh, or in uh, Numbers chapter 4, after Aaron and his sons had finished covering the holy food. This is about when they're on the move, when they're packing up the tent and they're about to go somewhere else. So after Aaron and his sons have finished covering the holy furnishings and all the holy articles, and when the camp is ready to move, only then are the Kohathites, that's a family clan within the tribe of Levi, only then are the Kohathites to come out and do the carrying. But they must not touch the holy things or they will, what does it say? They'll die. The Kohathites are to carry those things that are in the tent of meeting. And so transporting the holy things, which included obviously the, the ark, this was actually very significant stuff. There was processes and protocols that were in place because... We are God is holy and we are not. And by the way, when the ark was built, they, <clears throat> they, they put four rings, one on each corner of the ark. They were made of big rings made of gold and inserted through each pair of rings, they inserted a pole, a wooden pole, so that the ark, when it's transported, could be carried and it wasn't touched. And so God's judgment on Ananias and Sapphira, that was actually very sobering for the early church. Um, fear filled the church, actually. And uh, you might think that that might cause the church to shrink in number, but it didn't. It 
people getting serious about holiness, the church grew, uh, more people joined the church. The death of Uzzah was sobering for David, but instead of becoming disillusioned and angry and giving up, he repented and he sought after God's will and he obeyed God's law. And so, in any second attempt to move the ark, proper preparation needed to be made. And this is what we see in chapter 15, actually. Chapter 15 is all about the proper preparation. Now, let me just pick up a few verses here that kind of summarise it a little bit. Uh, chapter 15, verse 11. Take a look at that. Then David summoned Zadok and Abiata the priests, and Uriel, Isaiah, Joel, Shemaiah, Eliel, and Abimadad, the Levites. And he said to them, You are the heads of the Levitical families. You and your fellow Levites are to consecrate yourselves and bring the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place I have prepared for it. It was because you, the Levites, did not bring up the first time that the Lord our God broke out in anger against us. We did not inquire of him about how to do it in the prescribed way. So the priests and Levites consecrated themselves in order to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, and the Levites carried the ark of God with the poles on their shoulders, not on the back of a cart, as God had commanded in accordance with the word of the Lord. So what are the things that needed to be prepared? Number one, Jerusalem needed to be prepared. And we're told actually early on in, in verse chapter 15 that uh, David uh, prepared some land in Jerusalem and then they pitched a tent for the ark when it arrived. That's a good start, isn't it? Actually, have some place proper to put the ark. Secondly, he gathered uh, the Levites together so that they would be the ones who would carry the ark amongst the Levites of the Kohathite clan. And thirdly, the Levites consecrated themselves. They purified themselves. They cleansed themselves by the purification rituals and by offering up sacrifices for their sin before they could carry the holy Ark of the Covenant. And so, by obeying God's word, the Ark was successfully transported to Jerusalem. There were no deaths on the road to Jerusalem. Where much later, under David's son Solomon, uh, the Ark would find its home in the temple. And so this uh, movement of the ark to Jerusalem and its arrival in Jerusalem was, was a great moment of praising God. And there was nothing quiet or sombre about their praise. Uh, from verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 16, right through to the end of chapter 16, there was a heck of a lot of music that was happening. Uh, let's just read chapter 15, verse 28 just to get a sample of that 1528 
So all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord with shouts, with the sounding of ram's horns and trumpets and of cymbals and of the playing of lyres and harps. As the ark of the covenant of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michelle, daughter of Saul, watched from a window and when she saw David dancing and celebrating, she despised him in her heart. How about that, eh? There's two different reactions, isn't there? <laughs> two different responses to God. There's, there's a lot of blowing of horns and clashing of cymbals and blasting of trumpets and plucking of stringed instruments and dancing and celebrating and singing. The sort of thing we should be doing in church, eh? But not everyone was singing. Because when David's wife, Michelle, when she saw the joy that her husband was experiencing, she despised him from the heart. She was Saul's daughter. She'd rather have the days of her father. She'd rather have the Ark of the Covenant going to rack and ruin on the Philistine border. She'd rather Israel not be inquiring of God. She certainly wasn't singing. But God's people, we've got a lot to sing about, don't we? And in fact, we know what these people sung on that day. I mean, you've got David leading this thing. What do you think they're going to be singing? They're going to be singing a psalm of David, aren't they? And uh, we've got this fantastic psalm of David. Have a look at chapter 16, verse 7. Uh, that day, David first committed to Asaph and his associates this psalm of thanks to the Lord. Now, I would love to spend all uh, morning on this psalm, but we need to get out to morning tea at some stage. Uh, let me just summarise it for you. Uh, firstly, they sung about the glory of God. Secondly, they sung about how faithful God is to his covenant. Thirdly, they sung about how God is supreme over i've got to read some of this we've got to read some of it have a look at verse 23 sing to the lord all the earth proclaim his salvation day after day declare his glory among the nations his marvelous deeds among all the peoples for great is the lord and most worthy of praise he is to be feared above all gods because when you fear god you get to know him don't you and when you, get to, when you fear God, you fear him because of his holiness and our sinfulness. And actually it leads you to his mercy and to repentance. And, and so therefore they're able to then sing of God's salvation. Now recently, someone in church asked me, uh, whatever happened to the Ark of the Covenant? I mean, is it sort of buried somewhere so some Indiana Jones type can... Well, truth is, we don't, we don't know absolutely what happened to the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, what we do know is that there's no word of the Ark of the Covenant after the Babylonian invasion of Jerusalem and the exile of the people out to Babylon. So most likely it was destroyed uh, when the exile took place by the Babylonians. Now, the people for whom 1 Chronicles were written, they were the descendants of those who had returned from 
the exile in Babylon. And so they lived generations after the last we know of the Ark of the Covenant, which means that they had never seen the Ark of the Covenant like us. And yet, we have even more to sing about than David did. Because God has come to us, not in the symbol of an ark, but in the person of his son, who, um, as the old version puts it in John 1, that, you know, it says that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and goes on to say that he. He made his dwelling amongst us, that he tabernacled in the old version. He tented amongst us, that he might die for us. God's discipline uh, may sometimes seem severe, but when we understand his holiness and our sin we can actually know for sure that God is love. It was uh, the Apostle John who made that statement, God is love. And he says, well, how do we know that God is love? Because he sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. That he sent his son, that he would be an atoning sacrifice for our sins, that he sent his son, that he would pay the debt that we owed for God because of our rebellion against God, that through him that we would be cleansed. Not because of any good that we have done, but because on the day of judgment when God looks upon us, he sees the cleansing work. He sees his own son who traded places for us on the cross. So that we can, with confidence, enter into the most holy place. <laughs> that we can sing that hymn that goes, Bold I approach the eternal throne and, and claim the crown through Christ, my own. Now, I've got to say this. We didn't read the whole of this, these chapters today. Uh, we read uh, the more easily pronounced sections of this passage. Uh, because there's a lot of stuff in today's passage which wouldn't exactly be inspiring verses for your quiet times. And the reason I say this is because as David was organising, preparing properly for the Ark of the Covenant, uh, that meant good organisation and good organisation meant drawing up rosters. Rosters of Hebrew names. Rosters for the people who would serve on the door of the tent. But mostly rosters for the music teams. What instruments they'd play, who'd be playing together and so on. Lots of lists of Hebrew names of musicians. But hidden in the administration is a real gem of a verse. Let's close off with this. Chapter 16, verse 41. 
It says, with them were Heman and Jeduthun and the rest of those chosen and designated by name to give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. You like that? Why do, why do we sing? Why do we rejoice? Why do we serve? What is it that motivates us? What is, it is because his love endures forever. That's why. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this uh, harsh lesson uh, from your word uh, in the experience of uh, David and the death of Uzzah. Father, we pray that from this that we would know more clearly of your holiness, of our sinfulness and the great reason why Jesus had to come and die for us. Father, we do pray that uh, we would be people who have a right attitude to you, one that fears you and one that seeks wisdom from your word and one which finds mercy and forgiveness uh, in your cleansing work on our behalf. Father, we pray that um, as people who've been cleansed by Jesus, who can actually enter into the most holy place, that we would be those who give thanks and praise to you forever and ever, for we know of your love which endures forever. In Jesus' name, Amen. Okay. Next one.